Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, and welcome back to Godsplaining. I am Father Gregory Pine, joining from Freiburg, Switzerland. He says emphatically, so as to buoy up his spirits, because he is at a distance from those other two co-hosts, Father Jacob Bertrand. Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, Father Jacob Bertrand, um, how are things? And by how are things, I mean, please tell us about an exciting piece of Godsplaining news that has already been told, but we still are excited about. <laughs> wow, this everything just took took me for a loop this time because wow. I have no idea what Father Gregory was saying about being far away because that's also the same as last time too. But now being together has done other things to him. I don't know. Whatever. And then I was not expecting to talk about this. I thought he would. But listen, here we are. So exciting news that's already been announced on Godsplaining. Uh, we are <laughs> Godsplaining. That's us. We are hosting our first retreat uh, this summer. So I, it is exciting. I'm actually very excited about it. Um, not an online retreat. Not a virtual retreat. Not a something else retreat. It's an in-person retreat uh, this summer in July, July uh, 23rd through the 25th. That's a Friday through Sunday at the Seminary of the Immaculate Conception in Huntington, New York, which is out on Long Island, um, as some people say on Long Island. Um, all five of us uh, hosts of uh, Godsplaining are going to be there. So the three of us uh, Father Patrick, Father Gregory, myself, and then Father Joseph Anthony and Father Bonaventure um, for this weekend retreat. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it, except that we're excited. It's called As It Is in Heaven, um, The Christian Life. And it's for those, I don't know, do we call them young adults? Sometimes yeah. I find that to be pedantic, but young adults, 22 to 33, um, old enough to drink, younger than Jesus when he died. Um, mm -hmm. That's the age range. So yeah, super pumped. Check it out on our website, godsplaining.org, the events tab. There's information there. You can register there, uh, all the rest, but it should be pretty, pretty dope. Pretty lit. Oh. If you want to be godsplained for a whole weekend, <laughs> this is the way. Yeah, yeah. Comprehensively so. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. I guess you could, you could be godsplained around a campfire. You could be yeah, God's I was going to say, should we say what we're going to, should we say what we're going to do? But Father be, Patrick's doing a great be, job. You can be God'splained <laughs> in a dining room. You'd be God'splained in the confessional. He's stuck on. You'd be God'splained right anywhere. <clears throat> yeah, nice. So there you have it. July twenty third through twenty fifth. Anything you want to add, Father Gregory, Father Patrick? You're you're done. You've had. That's it. <laughs> yeah. No. That's uh, that's it. Uh, the pertinent details are on the website. Uh, it's, I think, $350 to attend. And, um, yeah, there are going to be talks, divine office, mass, confession, adoration, hanging out, bonfire, all the above. So it should be groovy. And uh, it's on the North Shore, so you're going to be looking at the Long Island Sound, uh, on the other side of which is New England, where Father Patrick lives. And I felt like that was a pertinent detail because... Um, yeah. Your geography is off. You can't see where it's on the other side. is Connecticut, and Father Patrick lives in Rhode Island. <laughs> whoa, whoa, Connecticut's in New England. Yes, um, but like so is Rhode Island. But you see Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. All right. I was trying to make it's like, like on a the other nice side connection. is Canada. Yes, Canada's over there too. But you're not going to see Canada. <laughs> Jokes on you if you thought that was going to be warmly received by a Yankee, Father Gregory. <laughs> All right. Well, we haven't read any readings, but I've been burned sufficiently. So now 
Uh, we're going to go and lead into our meditations on the readings for this Sunday uh, by praying the collect for uh, today's Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty ever-living God, who as an example of humility for the human race to follow, caused our Savior to take flesh and submit to the cross, graciously grant that we may heed his lesson of patient suffering and so merit a share in his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. With that, we will pass on to the first reading. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord has given me a well-trained tongue, that I might know how to speak to the weary a word that will rouse them. Morning after morning he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Initially, or at first reading, this passage from, from the prophet Isaiah might seem sort of an, an antithesis to a litany of humility. Uh, Isaiah kind of goes on about the things that he's done, the, the way in which he's withstood the, his, his perseverance, um, but he, he, he does qualify where, those, where that perseverance, where that grace comes from. He explains that it's, it's from God that the Lord has given him all of these things. And above all, looking at looking at this passage and even as, at Isaiah, uh, at, his, uh, at him as a man and his mission as a prophet, um, looking at this, at this litany and these gifts from God, um, they can be summarized really by, by one virtue, I think. Uh, and that's, that's the virtue of perseverance, that Isaiah has persevered, not on his own merits, not on his own strength, but by giving himself completely completely to God and handing himself over, um, fulfilling his, his mission, fulfilling his vocation, um, all of those things. And perseverance here is, is quite a virtue to recall, especially as, um, you know, today on Palm Sunday, as we hear in the gospel, the passion, as we prepare for Holy Week, as we prepare for the passion at the end of the week, the resurrection, the perseverance um, with Christ in the passion and in his passion is, is the call of all Christians to live with Christ. Um, because in the moment, in, in, in living with Christ and persevering with Christ, we're called to live in the reality of Christ and in the reality of who we are. And in order to do that, in order to dive into who we are, in order to open ourselves up to Christ, takes a great deal of, of courage, of fortitude, and of perseverance. Um, we can't escape the reality of our, of our sinfulness. We can't escape the reality of the brokenness of the world. We can't escape these things. They're all around us. And sometimes, though, they can be overwhelming and depressive and almost too much to bear, as they were for Isaiah many times, as we read in his, in his book and in his prophecies, um, we shouldn't, nonetheless, we shouldn't hide, hide from that. We shouldn't turn from that because it's in that reality. It's in that presence um, where, where Christ is waiting. Our Lord doesn't die on the cross. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't rise from the dead to, to save, to save people who are out of touch with reality, but to save real men and women to heal real wounds and to bring real people um, to know him, to know the love of the Father and to share with them for all eternity. So as we head into Holy Week, as we kick off Holy Week on this Palm Sunday, Isaiah is our, is our perfect guide here that calls us to call upon the Lord, reminds us to call upon the Lord, 
to beg that virtue of perseverance, but also to hope in the light of the resurrection. I think a significant part of the violence of the Palm Sunday um, liturgy is the speed at which the people turn against the Lord. And so so we experience this within the context of just the Palm Sunday liturgy, but then we experience it in a a kind of meta-memorial throughout Holy Week um, as we have days of rejoicing. But the Palm Sunday liturgy begins with this great acclamation, does it not? Uh, of Christ, you know, shouts of, of welcome and of uh, crying out. Um, the joyful tones that, that dominate the, the reception of the crowd on that day is as Jesus is received into the holy city like a king, or as Father Gregory would say, like unto therefore a royal one or something like this. Um, so the, so the, 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 the speed at which, the speed at which, the speed at which the liturgy turns against the Lord is, is truly remarkable. Um, you know, Jesus is received with those great acclamations, an acclamation which we pray during every Eucharistic liturgy, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the highest. This is the prayer of the holy, 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 or the Sanctus. Again, expressing the joyful, the, the laudatory reception of Christ. Uh, but but then through this liturgy, through this mass, these readings, we experience a sharp, a sharp turn um, where the Lord, where the Lord suffers and suffers greatly. And the cries of Acclaim and welcome, the laudatory praises um, uh, diminish. They they evaporate. They um, the not even not even an echo remains, and we're left with the Lord who is beaten, whose cheeks are uh, you know are not shielded from buffets and spitting, and and who, who you know the Lord who knows every kind of every kind of pain and suffering that that could be imaginable. So before we recorded the episode, <clears throat> Father Patrick was making fun of me and said that uh, when it came to commenting on the gospel, I would say something obscure of Trinitarian theology. So at that moment, there was a movement in my heart. I would call it an inspiration, and I decided to say something obscure uh, pertaining to Trinitarian theology about all three readings. So let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So this first reading is the third of four servant songs in the book of the prophet Isaiah, uh, which is some of the most potent of prophecies. Uh, so St. Jerome says of the book of the prophet Isaiah that it's like a gospel. It's the fifth gospel. So clearly does it speak of Christ. So Christ is the key that unlocks the pages of this text, because if you're looking for some other suffering servant, it doesn't really make sense. But once you see it as Christ, everything falls into place. And I think here, that's the only way to make sense of these two images that are reduced at the beginning of the reading, namely that The Lord is one who speaks, right? So he's been given a well-trained tongue to speak to the weary word that will rouse them. But that's conditioned in the next passage by, he opens my ear that I may hear. So the Lord is one who is competent, who speaks, who has a well-trained tongue. And yet, wait, that ear has first to be opened, that it hear? So his message is a message received. His message is one that's contingent upon a revelation. And what the Lord does in his human life, right? What the Lord does in his human life, namely his reception of knowledge, you know, so he has divine knowledge as the second of the most blessed Trinity, but he also has the knowledge of the beatific vision. He has the infused knowledge of the prophets. He has the acquired knowledge of a perfect man, right? But what we see in his human life is a revelation of the interior life of the most blessed Trinity. So from all eternity, the Father is begetting the Son. The Father conceives the Word, and the Word proceeds from the mind of the Father as a fruit. And so there is this sense in which the Lord is being begotten in speech. 
And in order to receive and transmit that word, he must receive it from the Father. Does that mean that the Son is less than the Father? No. It means that he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So by meditating on this, the fact that this prophecy testifies to the coming Christ, who reveals the Father in his coming, shows us that the whole logic of the Lord's incarnation is ultimately a revelation of the Most Blessed Trinity, which is to say, the point is to be saved from our sins, yes, but ultimately, so as to become like God, who can be known, and as known, loved. Mm. All right, with that, let's pass on to our second reading. Uh, So Father Jacob Bertrand, if you would read that for us. A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. So here we have the one chosen to save Israel, Hosanna, the one that God sends to save, um, Christ the Lord, the mighty king. Again, entering the city of David to much acclaim, um, but entering still humbly, riding on the colt of an ass, riding on riding on not a great horse, not an elephant, that would be cool, uh, but but an animal, meek and humble. And here Jesus reveals in his sufferings in a more profound way in the Philippians canticle, as it, ex- as it is expressed here theologically, that the way of Christ's victory is not a way of conquest, it's not a way of might, it's not a force of show, um, but it is, a, it is the way of sim- simplicity, of, of great humility, of pouring out of lowliness, the ultimate demonstration of this humility, of this loveliness, is, as the canticle narrates, Jesus' own taking of flesh. So here, don't mean to wade into Father Gregory territory, but to make a to make a Trinitarian comment that the, the Son, the Word, takes flesh, and that this humble descent of God into uh, human life, human appearance, uh, is the most grand submission that we could we could even think of that God, who is the source and origin of all that is, would take unto himself the likeness of the creature. But here Christ, importantly, is not just the likeness of the creature. He doesn't simply put on a kind of coat so that he blends in with us, you know, like slipping God into into human skin and maybe he won't be detected. No, but he really becomes like us in all things but sin. This is this is the way of Christ Jesus. This is the way of the disciple. Um, to pursue above everything else, humility, um, simplicity of heart, as it's said elsewhere, to imitate in our lives the submission of the Savior Christ, who did not fear the word, who did not fear to take the form of a slave. I love, so uh, the ending of this passage, sometimes the, the trajectory of this passage is described as a descent and ascent. So in verses 6 through 7, you kind of descend with Christ in his self-emptying, and then verses 8 through 11, You ascend with him in his exaltation. So you feel that as you move towards the end of the passage in a kind of um, heightened sense of expectation or a heightened sense of glorification, perhaps. Um, But there's all of these short 
phrases, which taken together, taken cumulatively, kind of lead breathlessly to the final announcement, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's a real emphasis upon the name. So there's an there is a name, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bend. And that name is being associated there, right, with the revelation of the name in the Old Testament. So God reveals his name so that his name can be called upon. And as a result of which, Israel uses it for divine worship, <clears throat> but is also very careful not to abuse it. And there's this kind of great reverence that grows up around the name, sometimes referred to, you know, as the Tetragrammaton, or, you know, you have different kinds of lo ways by which to circumlocute it in the scriptures, lest it be written down too hastily and things like that. But here we're saying that Jesus, right, has the name. Uh, so the name in the Old Testament has been associated with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, that name is spoken not for the sole glorification of the Lord himself, but unto the glory of God the Father. So uh, for those Jews, perhaps new to the faith, who might be somewhat uncomfortable with the fact that this tradition of thousands of years is seemingly displaced in the Christian you know, kind of in the Christian dispensation. They're like, I was real keen on this Jesus guy, but he's replacing the name. And it's like, no, the name itself has a trajectory. The name itself has an orientation, and that is to the glory of God the Father. So again, we see in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we see in the manner of his own self-presentation, this directedness to the Father. And uh, obviously, as we, as we head into Holy Week, uh, we're, we're just saturated, we're permeated, we're soaked in divine mysteries. And it's, it's uh, the kind of general sensibility of these liturgies to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest, to look at the Lord Jesus Christ who suffers and dies, to look at the Lord Jesus Christ who is resurrected from the grave. But always when we look to him, he is pointing awesomely and adamantly to the Father, not because he himself is not worthy of worship, because he is, because he's God, God in human flesh, but because that is the whole nature of the Godhead. The whole nature of the Godhead is this relation into which we ourselves are called. So, yeah, wild times, man. Wild times. For the record, my notes, I have a few notes on, on talking about Christ as the second person of the Trinity. And I wonder if that's just because Father Gregory so inspires us. You know, he really leads Father Patrick and, and me in our sort of you know, in all things, he's he's a real teacher. So um, I'll, I'll shy away from that because I don't want to steal his thunder or his, you know, mastery. So, uh, but I think what what St. Paul's reading or this this canticle, as it's as it's sometimes called from from the letter to the Philippians does, is it, it helps us from um, what Pope Benedict called domesticating God. It helps us from tem being tempted to domesticate Domesticate God and what Pope Benedict or Ratzinger before he was Pope when he when he used this terminology and used it in different places What he meant by that was that um, it's easy for us because because Christ became one of us because he became man It's easy for us to think of him in terms of humanity alone or in terms of only being another person or even in in, in kind of exalted ways of but still within the realm of humanity that that God is a great that that Christ is a great moral leader um, that he just he sets a great example, and though he does set an example, and he is a good moral leader, he's also God. He's also God, and there's that we run the risk of what of domesticating of him, of making him nice, making him a sort of uh, a sort of uh, like a, a little house cat that just kind of sits there and smiles back at us, and and that's that's not what. 
Christ came to be when the second person of the Trinity, I'll kind of whisper that a little bit, when the second person of the Trinity became man, when he became incarnate, when he descended from heaven, um, as as Father Gregory pointed out, you know, coming down from heaven before rising as the canticle shows us, um, he didn't come to be something contained by us, something formed or put into a box or into a specific kind of category so that we can kind of take out as a sort of um, like talisman of our faith, but he came to die for us to offer a perfect sacrifice. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself, left left that place in heaven so to, to take on flesh um, to save us, to save us and to suffer for us, uh, so as to lead us back to the Father, so as to lead us back to God, to reestablish that relationship, to give us once again access to the divine. We, we, we run the risk, each of us in our own lives, of domesticating God, of, of um, sort of lumping him into categories or, you know, not giving him the whole of who we are. And this really goes against everything that St. Paul is teaching us in this canticle, that, that our whole lives ought to kneel down, to bend the knee before Christ, so as to be raised, so as to be raised by and with him. Okay, with that, we're going to pass to the gospel. Um, as you know... We read the entirety of the Passion Narrative on Passion Sunday and on Good Friday. So that's two full chapters of Sacred Scripture, which is quite a bit. And as much as you might enjoy listening to the dulcet tones of our very own Father Patrick Briscoe for 12 straight minutes, uh, we are going to have for you uh, an excerpt. So, Father Patrick, if you would take us to the Gospel. An excerpt from the Passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders who heard it said, Look, he is calling Elijah. One of them ran, soaked a sponge with wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see if Elijah comes down to take him. Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. The veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw how he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So, the line um, that perhaps draws most attention, or one of the lines that draws most attention, is this idea or this revelation that Jesus gives a loud cry and breathes his last. Now, in some of the Gospels, the word that's used for breathes his last is literally gave up the spirit. Uh, And the word there uh, means literally the spirit went forth, which is to say that in his last act in the flesh before his resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ gives the spirit. Now, mind you, the Lord is giving the Spirit at every turn, for wherever is the second of the most blessed trinity, there too is the third. Um, and we see the Spirit show up in manifest fashion at the baptism, in the descent of the dove, at the transfiguration, in the cloud, in the upper room, when our Lord comes and visits the disciples immediately after the resurrection and breathes on them, saying, whatever sins you bind will be bound in heaven, whatever sins you loose will be loosed in heaven. And then again in Acts 2, at the descent of the tongues of flame over the head of the apostles. Um, But another way in which this passage is sometimes rendered, and how it's read by St. Thomas Aquinas, is comment is given to the fact that the cry is loud. So St. Thomas says, I don't know if you, he says, have 
ever suffered asphyxiation. He doesn't actually say that. I'm just saying that. Um, but it's typically those who die of asphyxiation uh, don't make loud cries at the end. It's the type of uh, thing that ends with a whimper and not with a bang. So the fact that the Lord gives a loud cry signals a couple of things in St. Thomas's mind as he reads the tradition. One, the Lord is in charge, right? Uh, it's not that he's showing off, but the Lord is God, and God is not killed by surprise, or nor is he confounded by death. Rather, the Lord gives himself to it. He gives himself to it freely. He lays down his life, and he takes it up again. And so he says, what we're seeing here is not that the Lord is like kind of brought to his wit's end or brought to his body's limit. It's that he has done all things well, and now it is finished. So the Lord has, has intended this act from, you know, the outset of his incarnate mission. He has foreseen all that will take place, and he has completed it all in just such a way that the salvation which he wins for us is perfect and is, is such that he can apply it to each of us individually, whom he sees and loves from the cross, in the way best suited to our salvation. So, I mean, it kind of amounts to the fact that there is a divine purpose, even in this moment of greatest vulnerability, in the sending of the Spirit, and the giving of himself, and the laying down of his life. I love the Gospel of Mark, uh, and this year uh, for Palm Sunday, we have the, the Passion According to St. Mark. Um, I think partly I love the Gospel of Mark because it's um, it, it kind of bestow or betrays a, a kind of um, uh, action or franticness. If, if you look at Mark compared to the other synoptics or even to John, especially even to John, um, Mark is always on the move. Jesus is always on the move in the Gospel of Mark, even in the words that Mark uses to, to convey revelation. Um, the Gospel is full of the word and, um, and Jesus did this, and they did this, and you know, there's a continual march toward toward something, and that towards something, that thing is is the cross. Uh, for Mark, everything everything is centered on the cross. We can't understand Jesus at all into the cross, and we see this in the the excerpt from from the Passion that Father Patrick read for us. Um, the the first time that Christ is identified as the Son of God um, is not is not by one of the disciples earlier it's not by um, one of his followers but it's it's here at at the at the crucifixion um, when the centurion by the centurion by the Roman centurion when the centurion says truly this man was the Son of God the reason that the centurion is able to identify Christ as the Son of God is um, is because of the cross. Mark is teaching us that that it's only uh, that it's only united to the cross that Christ's um, identity and Christ's mission uh, make sense. They come together. It's only in light of the cross or in the shadow of the cross, we could say, standing beside the cross, that we understand who Christ is and what Christ is about. Uh, it, it's the same for our own lives. Christ, as as I was saying about this idea of domesticating God with respect to the second reading, Christ makes no sense if we remove the cross if we remove the passion, if we remove his suffering, because that's that was his mission here on earth. Uh, so too, for our lives, our lives make no sense separated from the cross. Um, we can look at our own lives, we can look at the world around us, we can look at people we know, people we love, people we observe. Um, life is pointless but for Jesus Christ. 
that's full stop. Life makes no sense without Jesus. Life is not worth living without Jesus. It's There's no sense in pursuing the good. There's no sense in sacrificing. There's no sense in being transformed, but for the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's here at this moment in the holiest of holy days for us Catholics that we um, that we begin to see this again anew this year. Um, so in our own lives, you know, as we dive into Holy Week, as we as we pursue the the glories and the mysteries of our Lord's Passion, Death, and Resurrection, um, we we shouldn't lose sight of that reality that it's only in the shadow and close to the cross that our lives have any have any purpose, have any meaning, and also have any hope of of rising from that. Yeah, when people ask why they should listen to God's planning, one of the re- one of the reasons I offer them is that the subtlety of discourse is so great. <laughs> not that I not, not that I disagree with anything Father Jacob Berger was saying. He was he was he was singing my anthem there. Um but sometimes people pause, you know, they 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 don't know they don't know what to make of this because the gospel consists of very real claims and one one of those very real claims um that is that is very important to see and to pause and to meditate on is what it means um when we claim that the veil of the temple is torn open uh, so i think this has among the many things we could say about this action i think it has two important effects uh, there are two important claims at work here so what is the veil of the temple uh, that is being referred to well this is the veil to the holy of holies so it's protecting the place where the tabernacle was, which contained the Ten Commandments, um, some manna from the wilderness, a piece of uh, Aaron's staff. Okay, so the so the tabernacle is there, and it contains all these things. The Ark of the Covenant is there, and all those things are located within the most sacred place inside uh, Israel's temple there in Jerusalem. So this most sacred place was called the Holy of Holies, or the holiest place, and it was um, it was demarcated, as it were, it was d- divided from the rest of the inner part of the, of the holy part of the temple um, by a curtain. And so when Christ dies, there was an earthquake and that veil ripped and was torn open. And this signifies two things. It signifies first the abolition of the ceremonial precepts of the old law, or perhaps we could use Christ's language and say the fulfillment, since he says, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So we have, we have the leaving behind of Israel's ceremony ceremonial precepts and the, the taking up of those new precepts that Christ gives to us, um, one of the most important of which is to observe his death as a memorial and to share with Christ um, in, in the Eucharist the graces that he has offered by his death on the cross. Okay, so the abolition, the fulfillment of the ceremonial precepts of Israel, this is the first thing. And the second thing is to recognize the closeness of God. The whole of the Old Testament is uh, is directed at bringing the people of Israel to intimate relationship with their God. All all that God teaches in the law and the prophets, it all leads to bringing the people of Israel uh, into intimate union with God. By declaring that the temple veil was ripped, that the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn open, we are declaring that no longer is God cornered off, no longer is God a part of us, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be intimately united to him, and by the merits of Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, it is actually possible. He, he, he makes it such that we can accomplish this union. Boom. That, my friends, is the full complement of readings from this Sunday's liturgy. So a wrap of things that may be of interest to you or 
things that could help the coming of the kingdom. We've got a retreat for young adults, ages 21 through 33. Um, that retreat is called As It Is in Heaven, The Christian Life. It's to be held in Huntington, New York on North Shore of Long Island. And uh, the cost is $350, and it will be hosted by the Five Friars of God's Planning. So you are the most, uh, you are the most welcome. And information about that is on the website, godsplanning.org, uh, along with sign up and payment stuff. So please do check that out. Also, please like and share episodes of the podcast, little buttons on your podcast app that you can push, and then stuff happens, uh, I'm told. Um, so please do that. Um, and especially, uh, you might send it to friends who think that there is a purpose to life apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Just share it and say, listen to Father Jacob Bertrand at minute 27 and 10 seconds, and then think about how much everything that you're doing right now stinks. <laughs> Just kidding. I would never, but seriously, yeah, do that. Um, yeah, yeah so, <laughs> yeah, so please do, uh, share it with friends, especially those who need some encouragement here in this Holy Week, um, it can be tough, right? So nothing like meditating on the scriptures uh, to get drawn in to the divine life. Uh, and with that, uh, yeah, we will leave you today with uh, a prayer of the people from today's Mass. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. So let us pray. Lord, we pray. Look, we pray, O Lord, on this your family for whom our Lord Jesus Christ did not hesitate to be delivered into the hands of the wicked and submit to the agony of the cross, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on God's Planning. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app, and visit us at godsplaining.org. Thank you.